So what does it mean to be ready? Uh, when Tanya was pregnant with our firstborn, Seth, uh, his birth was something of a surprise, or the timing of his birth was something of a surprise. So uh, Tanya had just finished school. She's a teacher. It was a summer holidays. We thought, great, we've now got seven weeks to get everything ready to do our, our planning. Now, at the time, I was working at a church as an interim a youth pastor, as well as other responsibilities. So you know, some nights I was out, I was six nights a week, most weeks. So it was very busy. We just moved house. Lots of busyness that was going on. Right, now's the time. We're going to sit down and plan it. Monday evening, we're sitting down planning. Right, what do we need to do? How are we going to get ready? Top of our list, hospital bag. Going to organize, get that packed. A few hours later, I'm driving Tanya to the hospital uh, because her waters have broke. So when, uh, when Tanya was pregnant with Orla, hospital bag, top of the list, very early on, like first trimester, going to get that hospital bag ready. We knew what we were doing at that time. Readiness. What does readiness look like? Now, in that instance, being ready... Uh, meant investing some time in, in getting something all prepared. Now, it was a one-off thing. It took time to get all the things together, to buy everything, make sure it's in the bag. But once it's in the bag, it's there. You keep it in the car, you're done, you're sorted. That's not what readiness looks like if you're an Olympic athlete. So COVID has put a delay on the 2020 Olympics, bit of a disappointment in our household. But it's going to continue, Tokyo 2021. How have the athletes been getting ready for that? Now, they've not just gone, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to sit back now. I've done all my preparation for 2020. So when the new Olympics kick in, I'm fine. I'm sorted. Now, athletes have been continuing to prepare, to train. Now, we've got a friend who's a Paralympian. And during lockdown, they continue to do training so that they're ready. They, they didn't know the time when the Olympics was going to be rescheduled for. But for them to be ready for that date, it meant this ongoing work. See, readiness is not just simply this one-off event, this one-off thing that we do. It also involves this continual action, this continual preparation. And it's that second kind of readiness that we can, we're going to be considering this morning. We consider the question, we continue to consider the question, are you ready? What does it mean to be ready for the day of Christ Jesus? That's the focus of the passages that we've been looking at over these last few weeks. And I do have your, your Bibles open. You might have to fight the wind. So uh, in back in Matthew 24, the disciples had come to Jesus and they asked several questions. And Jesus had been talking about the temple stones being thrown down. And they come with this question saying, when are these things going to happen? Tell us, Jesus, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And what is going to be the sign of your arrival when you're going to come in and you usher in God's kingdom fully here on the earth? And Jesus goes on to answer these questions. I mean, first he talks about the temple's destruction and he gives various signs. He gives this time frame in which it was all fulfilled. Uh, and we've seen that in history. By 70 AD, the Romans had come in and they destroyed the temple. But then Jesus turns to this other question. When they say, well, well, when are you going to come fully in your reign? When are we going to see that reign established? When are you going to bring your good judgment on this earth? When is the new creation going to be ushered in? And to that question, Jesus says, well, there are no signs. There's not going to be obvious signs. There's not a time frame. 
That day is going to come suddenly. It's going to appear like a thief in the night. So you need to be ready. Be ready because you do not know the time. And then Jesus goes on to teach this series of parables to show what readiness looks like. Taking a number of everyday occurrences in the first century life and saying, you know, look at the situation. The situation that you're familiar with, this tells you something about what it means to be ready. And so as we've considered those situations of servants in our household, last week as Andrew was speaking, a wedding, an everyday occurrence. Next week we're going to be looking at a shepherd separating the sheep and the goats. Again, something that would happen in that culture. Today, we are considering a theme of stewardship. Uh, Our passage is really the first century equivalent of the apprentice. As people still watch The Apprentice, people know what The Apprentice is. Good, yeah, I'm like, kind of help. Rich, you don't. Okay. You're going to, we'll talk about it later. So this is, is kind of the first century equivalent of of the apprentice, or just go stewardship. Jesus is saying, now here's a situation that you're familiar with. This is what readiness looks like. So, Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 14. The, uh, the NIV 2011, you'll see this is titled The Parable uh, of the Bags of Gold. Some of the translations you have, it might be described as a parable of the talents. Don't get distracted by that. Let's just put this out at the very beginning. This parable has nothing to do with using your talent. Not a parable about using your talents. We'll come back to why in a minute. The parable of the bags of gold. And remember the question that we're to have in the back of our mind, the question that is being asked is, how are you ready? What does readiness mean for that day? Jesus is using this parable to teach us what readiness looks like. So this is the main point. I'm going to give you the main point up front and we're going to dig in and see why that's the case. The main point, discipleship demands growth. Discipleship demands growth. That's the main point. We're going to dig in and see why that's the case and then how that applies to what that means for our lives. So Matthew 25, I'm fighting with the wind. Verse 14, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. So this again, Jesus is building on the previous parable, parable we looked at last week, the the wedding, the parable of the ten virgins, saying, okay, what's it mean to be ready? It's like a master who's entrusting his wealth to his servants. As mentioned just previously, in the NIV, it's bags of gold that he's entrusted to them. Some of the translations, talents. All a talent is, is a weight of money. Talent is not about your talents and your skills and your abilities. In fact, in verse 15, he talks about giving these talents, giving these bags of gold according to people's ability. It wouldn't make sense to give talents according to people's talents or give abilities according to people's ability. This is not a parable about your talents and your abilities. This is just, the metaphor is money. It's a weight of money. So a talent was the ancient measure of money, the weight of money. A one bag of gold or one talent was equivalent to about 20 years wages. So the first servant who is given five bags of gold, let's hope my math works out okay here, uh, five bags of gold, that's 100 years wages he is given. 
The servant who's given two bags of gold, or two talents, that's 40 years wages. And that servant who's given that one bag of gold, that's still 20 years wages. It's a lot of money that they are given. And notice in verse 15, they are given according to their ability. So they're given this money, and that word, according to their ability, it already primes us that they are to be doing something with this money. This is money that is given for an investment. This isn't just money that's given for safekeeping. Given these different amounts of money. So it's a bit like in the schools where the pupils are given a pound. Okay, in that instance, they're all given the same amount of money. But you, you know that experience, you're familiar with it, where children are given a pound and they're told, go off, be an entrepreneur. Now you're going to spend that pound perhaps buying some ingredients, you're going to make some cakes, you're going to buy some things, make bracelets, and then after school you're going to set up your little stall and you're going to sell them. And what profit do you get from it? It's that same sort of idea, but instead of one pound, we're talking hundreds and thousands of pounds here. So again, think the apprentice, if that helps for you. If not, think about the pound rich, but then just scale it up. So they're given this money for this investment. The verses uh, 16 to 17, uh, those first two servants, they go off, they put their money at work straight away. And what do they get? They, they make a profit. But then verse 18, the man who has received this one bag goes off, digs a hole in the ground and hides his master's money. This is the first century equivalent of putting your money in a safe. So just think, and if this helps you, think the apprentice. So Sir Alan Sugar got his candidates there in front of them. To, to one candidate, he's given £400,000. He says, here's this money. Go and invest it in a business venture. And the camera follows them as they go all the way back to the house. They open the safe, put the money in, lock it, sit back. You know, phone out now. Just going to play on Twitter. Okay, that is the third servant. Not invested, just lock the money away. And so then verse 19, after a long time, the master returns. He settles these accounts. You know, what have you been doing with the money that I gave you to invest in? And the first servants then come. And they show the master what they've done. So this is what, verses 20 to 23. Say, so look, you, you've given us this. This is how we've put it to work. And, and this is a profit that we've made. And the master's delighted. He says, you know, well done, you good and faithful servants. I'm going to give you a promotion. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Now come and share in my happiness. And then we get the third servant, verse 24, who comes. And immediately, notice, he begins with an excuse. He begins by blaming the master. He comes into that boardroom. Sir Alan. That I, I know you're a, you're a harsh man, you're a hard man, you're, you're just interested in profit. And so I was scared. I was paralyzed with fear. I didn't want to make a loss. So what I've done is I've, I've put your money, I've kept it in a safe. I haven't touched it, but I, I've put it to one side. And now, here it is. How is that going to go down in the boardroom? He begins by blaming the master. It's your fault. You're scary. You're a harsh man. You're just interested in money and profit. I'm, I was afraid. I'm the victim here. But don't blame me. The fact that there's no profit, it's your fault. 
And so the master replies in verse 26 and starts to unpick this logic. Okay. So you think I'm harsh? You think I'm just interested in a profit? You were motivated by fear. Well, then why didn't you put my money on deposit with a banker? If you know that I'm expecting a profit, if you know that I'm expecting more back than I gave you, why didn't you do at the very least? You wouldn't have lost anything. You'd have made some sort of profit. If that is true, if that is who I am, why didn't you do that bare minimum? Now, this is the moment, if we're running with the apprentice metaphor, where the candidate starts to squirm in the boardroom. Now, they've been caught out. It's coming up with excuses. Saying that the master is harsh. Now, let's just stop for a moment and consider, is the master really harsh? Is is the master a harsh, hard man who, quote, reaps where you have not sown? Is this some sort of Scrooge character who's just interested in maintaining the most profit for themselves at the expense of everyone else? Not at all. If if we look carefully, that's not the case. And verse 21, how does he respond to those faithful servants? Well done, good and faithful servant. I'm giving you a promotion. Now come and share in my happiness. It's interesting, verse 28. Now that first servant is mentioned again. And what's that first servant holding in their hand? Ten bags of gold. Now the master hasn't called him in and go, great, thank you, that's mine. I love money, I love profit, I'm just sweeping it off. It's not that harsh, hard and caring master. That servant's still there with with the 10 bags of gold. And the kind of image that we're we're given is this, you know, this sort of business magnet who has given money to his employees and has said, go off, invest this money in some business venture. And to those faithful servants who've come back, he said, well, I'm giving you a promotion. I'm giving you a, a share in the profits of the organization, share in my happiness. And you know what? You keep that business venture and you keep it going. You keep investing in that. This is not a harsh and hard master. See, the words of the third servant are there as an excuse. Doesn't know what the master is like. Speaking a load of rubbish to excuse their own wickedness and laziness. And they're caught out. They're caught out and the master calls them for what they are, you wicked and you lazy servant. And for those few of you who have seen The Apprentice, I think there's probably about two of you, um, you know that experience when that candidate's in the boardroom and they're trying to pull a fast one and they've been caught out. And there is that sense of justice as you're watching it, thinking, you deserve what is coming to you, you little weasel. And there is great joy when that finger is pointed at them and says, you're fired. You're like, yes, you deserve to be fired. Perhaps you will learn your lesson. 
that this third servant is cast out. They don't get to share in their master's happiness. Verse 30, the worthless servant is thrown outside into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we recognize there is a justice in that decision when, when we see it aright. So that is basically uh, what the parable uh, is about. That's what happens. What does that have to do with being ready for Jesus' return? That main point, discipleship demands growth. Discipleship demands growth. We saw last week in the parable of the virgins, Jesus talking about being ready, be wise, be ready for that day. You don't know when it's going to come. And how are we to be ready? Well, see, if we just left it at the parable of the virgins, we, we might think, well, well, readiness is just doing that thing, getting that thing, that, that pot of oil, that hospital bag. It's done, it's sorted, it's fixed. But this parable here, as Jesus builds on it, he's saying the readiness is this ongoing work. It's not just this one-off action that you've done. Discipleship demands growth. Or to put it another Fruitfulness is required. Discipleship requires fruitfulness. Fruitfulness and growth in the Christian life, they are not optional extra. Now what fruitfulness looks like, we're going to dig into a bit more next week when we come to the parable of the sheep and the goats. The main point, discipleship demands growth. As Andrew touched on last week, Christianity is not about obtaining a ticket to heaven that you pop in your back pocket. You just sit down and get on with life, waiting for your train to arrive. Christianity is about discipleship, and discipleship demands growth. This parable warns us against any attitude that says, I've done it, I did it, I'm sorted. Any attitude that says, I said that sinner's prayer, I've asked Jesus into my life, I've been baptized, so that's it, I'm fine. And there is a stark warning to us here, and if that is your attitude, then you are in grave danger. Jesus says that that worthless servant is thrown out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and where there is gnashing of teeth. To be thrown out into the darkness, out from the light, out from God's presence. This is the Bible's image of hell. And remember who Jesus is speaking to here. These are still words to his disciples. See, these are words to people who would turn up at a service like this, who would tune in to a service like this. These are words, these are warnings to us. We shouldn't assume that just because we are here, then we are exempt from this warning. This is a warning that is spoken specifically to people like us. Now, this isn't meant to make us anxious. But it is to drive us to action. And perhaps this morning, as you listen to this, you you might be feeling somewhat anxious. 
Okay, discipleship demands growth. This is what this parable's teaching about. How much growth is enough growth? How do I know if I'm growing enough? Let's just go back to verse 15. The master gives to each of the servants according to their ability. The master's expectations of his servants were not unrealistic. God's expectations of you are not unrealistic. And growth is going to look different in all of us at different times in our lives. And this is not to say that there is this line that we create, this man-made line that says, unless you're giving this amount of money to the church, unless you are serving this number of hours in the church, unless you are memorizing this number of biblical passages and you're able to speak in this manner and hang out with these people and do these things, unless you cross that line, then sorry, you are not going to make it into the kingdom. That was what the Pharisees taught. And that was a burden on the lives of people. An oppression that led to great anxiety. And Jesus said to those people, to those who were burdened, to those who were anxious, come to me. All who are weary, all who are burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. And there is rest from that burdensome way of life, rest from that anxiety in Jesus Christ. But there is not rest from godliness. Godliness is not optional. Discipleship demands growth. So the question is not whether once upon a time you received the gospel message. The question is what are you doing with the gospel today? How is the gospel impacting your life today, changing it and transforming it? The question is not have you come to Jesus, but are you coming to Jesus today? That's what it means to be in this place of readiness. And this parable is not meant to make us feel comfortable. It's to prompt us to ask these difficult and these challenging questions of ourselves. As Jesus speaks to his disciples, as he speaks to you. And yet it is, it is so that you would be prepared, so that you would be ready, so that you wouldn't be caught out, so that you have the chance to respond now, to keep responding, to keep being prepared, so that day doesn't catch you unaware like a thief in the night. Discipleship demands growth. And yet God is not a harsh taskmaster. He's not one who harvests where he has not sown. Yes, discipleship demands growth, but discipleship also depends. Discipleship depends on grace. Now we might ask ourselves, how is it that growth occurs in this parable? Where does the growth come from? Where does it originate? The servants aren't expected just from their own resources to bring in this profit. How does it begin? Verse 14. The master calls his servants to himself and he entrusts his wealth. He entrusts his wealth to them. 
Discipleship demands growth. That we are saved for a purpose. To live godly lives. To be changed and transformed. To be fruitful. To be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the purpose of salvation. But what is the means? The means is that God gives. He gives of his riches. The riches of his grace that he lavishly pours out on our lives. The scripture tells us that God has given us everything that we need for a godly life. And he gives it to us. It is his riches poured out upon us. And yet the riches of God, they don't exist as something that, that is separate and apart from God. As God pours out his riches, he gives us nothing less than himself. God is not a hard, tight-fisted master who reaps where he has not sown. Christ died for you in order that you might share in his harvest of righteousness. That is who God is. The gospel does not begin and end with a forgiveness of sins. Now, there are, there are many love songs that speak about or seem to present the height of love. I love you just the way that you are. God does not love you just the way that you are. He loves you too much to love you just the way that you are. No, no loving parents would just stand by as their child is covered in the filth and the muck and, and the stench of the sewer. Just leave it as it is. No, no matter how, how attached a child has become to this putrid aroma. Now, a loving parent is not going to say, I love you just the way you are, so I'm going to leave you there. I'm just going to... Turn a blind eye when feces is wiped all over the walls and the sofa as you come in and sit down. True love does not turn a blind eye. True love turns towards. See, true love gets smeared in the muck and the filth as it cleans it away. See, the the great and glorious Son of the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who himself, very nature God, does not stand back. But Christ came all that we were meant to be, to bear all that we are so that in him we might be conformed to all that he is. And that isn't to say that we, that we somehow, as, as creatures, become divine. Now, as created creatures, we can never attain to, to being divine. Now, there's a point where we didn't exist. We're already like, nowhere near what it means to be divine. And yet the height that God has called us to, his purpose for us in Christ, is something that is actually beyond our human comprehension. 
that even as we say it, even as I say it, it is not something that we can truly fathom, that God has called for us to share in the divine life, to be caught up in the fellowship of the Trinity as we have life in the Son, to share in the life and the love of the Son. He invites us to share in His happiness. Come, share in your Master's happiness. That is the height to which He has called us to. It's the God we worship. The one who has given Himself for you that you may give yourself fully to Him. But what then? We might, we might ask, we might be wondering, what about the different measures of gold in this parable? Is this to say that God gives more of himself to some people than others? I think with any parable, we need to be careful that we don't push things too far. Now, the point is that there is a difference. We're all different. And our focus should not be on the person next to us. Now, whether it's a, a relative, a friend, a member of the church, our, our focus is not w- what about them in comparing myself to them. And surely I'm growing because I'm further along than them. We're all different. We've all started in different places. We all face different challenges. Now, what growth will look like for us is going to look different at different times. And yet the grace of God is sufficient for each and every one of us. The grace of God is sufficient. But it's never limited. Verse 29, whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. But the question is, where are you? What is it that God is highlighting in your life? Now, yes, we want to love and support one another, share our joys and our sorrows. But at this point, you know, there is a time for us to be rightly selfish in the sense that we look at what we need to do. Don't get caught up with everyone else. What is God highlighting in your life? What does growth mean for you at this point in time? What has God been challenging you with? And that may be, it may be for you. Now, repenting from an empty religion and turning to Christ for the first time. It may be putting an end to that that secret and sinful relationship. It may be repenting from gossip and slander. It may be forgiving those who slandered against you. It may be any, the number of ways, the myriad of ways that we're called to this continued love God, love of God with our entire being, to love our neighbor as ourselves. But what is God highlighting in your life today? What does discipleship look like for you? What does it mean to grow in godliness? And then what are you going to do? Are you going to take the grace of God, put it away in a safe, and ignore it? 
Are you going to invest in the investment that has been given to you by turning to Christ? By bringing your very struggles, the things that you're, you're going through now, and this isn't to say, you know, you've got it all sorted and it's, it's fixed and, and it's perfect, but rather than putting it to one side and ignoring it, that you are coming to Christ and you come again and again and again to find the all-sufficiency of his abundant grace that has been poured out upon your life in order that you may grow in godliness to the praise and glory of God. How will we be ready? How do we live in that state of readiness? Discipleship demands growth. But it also depends upon the abundant and all-sufficient lavish grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let us pray and seek him now. Father, this is my prayer, that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we may be able to discern what is best, that we may be pure and blameless for that day of Christ and filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So to your praise and to your glory. Amen.